0: Amen. You may be seated. So, I have a little bit of a confession to make. My name is Cody, and I'm a gardener. I never thought I would say that. Never really thought that would be me. Never really thought that's where I was headed in my life, uh... My dad had greenhouses when I was growing up, and I used to try and go and work in my uncle's chicken houses because I hated working in the chicken greenhouses. My grandmother, she's a, I mean, like, class A green thumb, and I, I remember telling her, and she tells me, reminds me all the time, Nana, I will never, ever have flower beds like this that I have to keep up. But for whatever reason, the Lord has recently changed me, and I'm in a different place in my life, and so I have gotten now where it's so bad that the very first thing I do every day when I come home is I avoid my family. I don't even go talk to them yet. I go walk in my garden, see how the flowers are looking, you know, see how the plants are going. I'm not even one of those masculine far, uh, gardeners that's growing like potatoes and stuff. Like I'm growing flowers. Flowers, that's my deal. But I found in, in my new gardening excursions, that in the right soil, at the right time, the right plant will grow. But the conditions have to be just right. That if you plant the wrong things, they'll turn yellow, or they'll turn, if there's not enough acid, if there's not enough nitrogen, they'll rot away. If they if the get too much water, the roots will grow fungus and rot away, and they won't make it. That if you have something that needs shade and you put it in full sun, it will wither away. If you put, have something that needs full sun and you put it in full shade, then it's not ever going to have the nutrients and, uh, to be able to, to charge it up and to grow as it was intended to grow. And so as a result, plants die a lot especially in the beginning of a a gardener's journey. The plants die a lot, and they all die in slightly different ways. Some of them are like my dogwood trees. I I planted these dogwood trees that the guy at trade day said were going to be healthy, good dogwood trees. They didn't have any leaves on them when I bought them, but I took the man's word for it. I dug the hole, and that was fun in and of itself. And so I dug the hole, planted these dogwood trees. I I watered them, and I watered them, and I watered them, and never one solitary leaf, and so eventually I just pulled these dogwood trees up and I broke them over my knee and they were dead, dry, dead in the middle of them. Other plants are more like some begonias that I planted. They sprung up, man, and they were beautiful, spectacular, full, and just like you see them from the road, vibrant, and it was like one day I just came home and they were dead. I don't even know what happened, I still don't know what happened, dead. Others are like my soft touch holly. Just vibrant new growth, seemed to be doing well, but then got one little brown spot, and then a bigger brown spot, and slowly decayed and died. What I want us to see this morning is that this very picture is the picture of the human heart when it comes to the gospel. That when the gospel comes to the right soil and the right heart at the right time, that it can take root and transform a man, take root and transform a woman. But if the soil of your heart is wrong, if the soil of your heart is is, is toxic, then the gospel will not take root there. In fact, the gospel will go into your heart and it will die, it will wither away in you. So this morning I ask you to evaluate your heart, I ask you to to look at the soil of your heart to see what the gospel finds there when it comes. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. We're coming to a, a transition, a transitional time in the book of Matthew, a transitional time in the ministry of Jesus. So if you would stand with me as we read God's word together. This morning we're going to do something a little weird. We'll read the first nine verses together and then we're going to skip over to verse 18 and read through verse 23. And then we'll come back to verses 10 through 17 next week. And God's word says in 13.1, that same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach and he told them many things in parables saying, A sower went out to sow. He who has ears, let him hear. Skip over to verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant word this morning. You may be seated. When we come to Matthew chapter 13, we're seeing a shift in the ministry of Jesus. Up until this point, we really have not seen many parables in the teaching of Jesus in the book of Matthew. But here we are in Matthew 13, and we actually see seven successive parables that are taught by Jesus. And we're going to be walking through those over the next seven, eight weeks or so. And so we come to this particular parable, and we're kind of struck because it says that a big crowd is gathered around Jesus... And Jesus, so has gotten into a boat, I guess so the crowd could probably see him and hear him, and he rows out from the shore and kind of uses the boat as like an old, uh, ready-made pulpit. Now, I think this is a good time for us to discuss exactly what a parable is. We're going to go into a lot greater depth on this next week so that we can kind of understand it a little bit more, but just, just kind of broad level, uh, surface level understanding of parable. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's something that that Jesus uses both to reveal his identity and to conceal his identity from people. But it's a story that's used and it's told of something that's very familiar on earth, something that's readily available on earth, and it's told to communicate something about God, to communicate something about our sinfulness, to communicate something about our position before God and to reveal perhaps the very character of God. Now, this particular uh, parable is a bit of a strange one, because the main character of this parable is not the sower. The main character of this parable is not the seed. The main character of this story is dirt. Dirt. Now, Mr. Smith, my beloved VOAG teacher in high school, he taught us a lot about seeds and germination and dirt, and y'all, it was Boring, right? Like, bored you to tears. And I think this shows what a brilliant teacher, what a brilliant communicator that Jesus is. Because when Jesus talks about dirt and Jesus talks about seeds, he's not putting you to bed. It's riveting instead. And Jesus is explaining us. He makes it very clear. I'm particularly thankful for this one because he makes it very clear exactly what he's talking about. He says that the the sower is Jesus himself, that he is the one being represented by the sower, that he is the one going out and he is casting the seed, sowing the seed. The seed is the kingdom of God or the gospel message. It is the truth about Jesus, that Jesus is the Messiah that has come to save the world from its sin. And the soil is the human heart. The soil is the heart of all of those who hear Jesus preach. And see Jesus teach, and witness and behold the miracles of Jesus, and know of the reports of Jesus. See, Jesus is explaining to us through this parable why it is that so few people accept him. Jesus is explaining to us in this parable why it is as we've walked through the first 12 chapters of Matthew, and over and over and over we see multitudes rejecting him, multitudes receiving judgment from him, and only a few coming to him. He's making it clear so that that we aren't taken back and aren't misunderstanding the situation at hand. And so what Jesus is teaching us is that the rejection of all of those listeners, the rejection of all of those witnesses of of his miracles is not the result of a bad messenger. Jesus is the messenger and the messenger is good. The problem is not the result of a bad message. The message is the kingdom of God. It is the hope for man. It is the opportunity for a person to be right with God. Rather, the problem is with the person. With bad soil in their hearts. You know, I often find it true that when I come to the Word of God, I find it offensive. I often find it true that when I preach the Word of God, it is offensive to people. That it finds kind of where we are in those lives that we get really comfortable living and we get really content living. Those sins that we kind of warm up to and begin to convince ourselves and deceive ourselves that they really aren't that bad. That the word of God comes in and it speaks to those things and it causes us to flare up and to bow up and to think, man, that can't be right. It takes all of those kind of those worldviews that kind of come into our mind and they kind of mush up together and blend in together to form this kind of eclectic worldview. They go, oh, come together in our minds, and we have all of our reasons for why we believe what we believe and why we think what we think. And then all of a sudden, we come to something in the Bible that is completely the opposite of everything we've ever believed. And what do we do? We think, well, that can't be right. That can't be what that means. That can't be actually what the Bible is saying. I just need some more context, obviously. I need some better cultural study on the text, obviously. And we're taking offense. And we're wanting to project back into it what we believe and make the scriptures say what we want it to say. But brothers and sisters, that should not be our first response to the Bible. Our first response to the Bible should not be to try to explain away what we have difficulty with. They' trying to explain away what brings offense to our worldview. Because you see, the problem is not with the message. The problem is not with the messenger. The problem is with your heart. Your heart is exceedingly wicked. Your heart is exceedingly deceptive. Your heart is what's always confusing you and wanting the Bible to be other than it is. And so let it be true of us that the first reflex that we have is to not take offense to the message. To not take offense to the messenger, but instead to search out the inconsistencies in our lives in accordance with the Scripture and root them out and put them to death so that we might be closer to the character of God. Jesus, in this parable, describes four different types of soil. The first soil that Jesus describes is a soil that seems on the outside not to have a chance to begin with, does it? It says that that Jesus that the sower is out and he's, he's casting seed and some of the seed falls on a path. And having fallen on a path, something that's really going to make you nervous, Alan, is a bunch of birds come swooping in and they begin to eat the seed away from the path. And so the, path, the, the seed is not able to take root. The seed is not able to, to, uh, to, to germinate and to produce any type of sprout or plant. Now look, some of y'all are born and raised in White Plains and Heflin, and you grew up on the family farm, and all of this is making sense to you. All of this, you understand the whole agricultural world. But now some of y'all, some of y'all are transplants, all right? Some of y'all are transplants from Weaver and Oxford, and you're going to need some help on what it means to know what we're talking about when we're talking about farm. and So so when we're thinking about the picture here, think about all these crops that you drive by on your way to our church here in the great metropolis of Iron City. You drive by all these crops and what do you see? You see them mostly all in very neat rows, don't you? They're in very clearly defined rows where the ground had been plowed up in the seed place and on either side of the crop is a path, right? Uh, On either side is what what kind of stands out typically around here is like a, a red clay that that has been left. It hasn't been plowed. It hasn't been planted. And the farmer will use that to go and to check on his crops or perhaps to, in the midst of this drought that we've been in, to bring irrigation through there. A variety of things the, the farmer will use this path for. It's very similar to the picture that Jesus is painting. It's very similar to the same thing that's happening happening in Jesus' day, that that they would have a, a plot. A, a plow, you know, done by a mule or a donkey, and they would have these rows that were set, but they didn't have two hundred thousand dollar John Deere's to go and do this work for them, right? So, so the way that they had to do it is they had to broadcast it. They had to broadcast seed uh, just everywhere, like just throwing it out by hand. And you can imagine that this is not the most efficient way to sow seed, but. Being as it is and having to sow a lot of seed, this was what they were resolved to do. So they would go and they would broadcast seed everywhere, that they, every place that they went. And some of the seed would fall into the plowed ground and other seed would fall into a variety of soils, including onto the path. And so Jesus says that the picture here is the picture of a man who hears the gospel. The sower is out, and he's broadcasting the seed. The sower is out, the messenger is out, and he's preaching the kingdom of God. He's preaching the good news of the gospel, and some of it lands on the path. And laying there on the path, the devil comes from that person, and he snatches away the gospel so that the gospel never takes root in the person's heart. Now, this brings up some questions, I think. This brings up some questions because it seems like, looking from the outside in, that, that this man never had a chance to begin with. It seems like that this man shouldn't even be held accountable because how was it his fault that the devil came and snatched away the gospel? How is it his fault that the, the devil came in and as he's hearing the gospel, as Jesus is preaching, the devil comes in before it takes root in his heart and jerks it away? And I believe here that the picture of God's sovereignty and the, the electing choice of God, I believe that's in view here. I mean, after all, Romans 9 18 says that, that God will have mercy on whomever he will have mercy and that God will harden whomever he will harden. But that's a partial picture. That's a partial picture. Because you see, when you think about what Jesus is saying, is this not just about the devil snatching it away? It's the fact that if the seed would have remained there or not, it wouldn't have taken root. You see, this was a path. This was the path that the farmer used day in and day out to walk his crops, to give them water, to give them nutrients, to, to pull from them the weeds. And day after day after day, this farmer is walking on this path and he's packing down this dirt and the dirt is becoming hardened and hard, more hard and harder and harder and harder. The the packing is becoming denser and denser and denser. So the seed falls on the path, and the path is so firm, the soil is so packed down tight that the the seed can't wiggle its way into the dirt and germinate. You You know what God has to do to harden your heart? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. God has to take absolutely no decisive action in your life to harden your heart. Whether the the devil snatches it away or not, your heart is hard. In fact, the only reason the birds can come, the only reason that the devil can snatch away the gospel from you is when the gospel can't penetrate your heart, can't find its way into the soil of who you are. Because it's just laying there on the surface, burning under the sun. And so the birds come by, swoop in, and eat it away. The devil takes and he snatches it from your hearts. The most terrifying position on earth, the most terrifying state a, a person can find themselves in in this life is in the state of a hardened heart. The state in which you build a shell up between you and God. It's the teenager that argues with his parents every single Sunday morning that I'm not going again this week. I don't want to hear that stuff again this week. I don't want to hear the same old, same old again this week. I'm, I'm, I don't want to hear the preacher talk about sin and crucifixion. and. Res- I don't want to hear that this week. And so he argues with his parents. What is that? That's him hardening his heart. Perhaps even better said, that's him demonstrating the hardness of his heart. This is the the husband that cowardly sends his wife and children off to church without him because he doesn't want to be confronted in his sin again. This is the grandmother that you go and you begin to talk to her about spiritual things and she cuts you off mid-sentence and says, I don't want to hear it anymore. I'm tired of it. I live in the real world. I know I'm okay with God. That's all you need to know. Listen to me. Some of you that always zone out. Some of you that always slouch down in your chair. Sit up for a second. Listen for just a second. If you feel and you evaluate your heart and you sense the shell in your heart before, between you and God hardening rather than softening, I want you to hear me say that you are on the threshold of death. There is no more precarious a position than a human being can be than in that one. How hard is your heart? Do you find when the gospel comes, when the gospel is preached, do you feel yourself locking down, putting up a wall, putting up a shell? Or do you feel yourself melting under the the Spirit's conviction, melting under the Spirit's prompting, softening before God? God, change me. God, transform me. God, make me somebody new. The second soil that Jesus describes is a rocky soil. Now on top, this soil would have looked good. The rock that he's talking about is limestone that would have been beneath the surface uh, in the ancient Near East or and still in the current Middle East. There would have been limestone underneath, but on top of that limestone would have been soft, good dirt that would have been just just maybe an inch or two thick, very very thin layer. And so the the seed is is broadcast. The free seed is cast out by the sower and it lands in the in this shallow soil. And man. That seed wiggles into its germinating paradise. You know what I'm saying? It gets down in there and it pulls the covers up over its head, and life is good for a minute. It begins to, to sprout up immediately, it says it shoots up and it looks vibrant and healthy and well. But then when that Middle Eastern sun begins to beat down on it and its roots, find themselves laying on that heated limestone, um, it scorches the plant, drying it up, causing it to wither and die as quickly as it sprang up. And Jesus says that this is the picture of a person who emotionally and enthusiastically comes to the Lord emotionally and enthusiastically, they profess faith in Christ. They hear the gospel preached by the gospel preacher and it takes root in their heart for just a second. It springs up and it looks impressive and it looks vibrant, but then it withers away almost as quickly as it springs up. That the emotion overcomes them and then the emotion departs from them. These are people that cry big tears and make big claims and perhaps even walk through the waters of the baptistry. But just a few minutes later, just a few weeks later, just a few months later, when the gospel begins to cost them something, when following after Jesus begins to cost them something, they wither away, not to be heard from again. They were swept up in the urgency of a moment, but as soon as another urgent moment came came about, that urgent moment departed. I told you about a soft-touch holly that I'd planted. And we had, this, so, we, so in our, our uh, you know, landscaping venture, we have these boxwoods that are kind of right up against the house. And I planted right in front of them a bunch of soft-touch hollies. Because everybody said, these things, you can't kill them. These things are tough. These, these, these things, they, they don't even have to be pruned. Like, they just grow naturally, this beautiful little round shape. You're Liars. <laughs> liars. My nana, my sweet nana is a liar. Because I grew these things and I had one, the one on the end seemed to be growing the fastest. They had like all these little arms like just shooting out. Oh man, look at that boss. He's like setting the pace for everybody else. Hey, come on. Come on, shrubs. Can't catch me. I told you. Confessional. Weird. I don't know. But then all of a sudden I noticed a brown spot. I began to water a little bit more, and then I went on vacation. And when I came home from vacation, I could see it from the road, I, off in the distance. I can see the sun gleaming behind beautiful clouds in the sky, and I am locked in on a brown soft touch holly in my yard. So I go, the sucker is just totally parched, totally brown, and I just grab it by the top and I pull it up. And it pulls straight out of the ground, not one root. Has spread. Not one root has sprung out of it and attached itself to the soil. You see, it's the dry seasons of life that will reveal and test the roots of your faith. It's the dry seasons of life. It's the moments in which the gospel is going to cost you. It's the moments in which the following Jesus is going to be difficult. It's in the moments in which there's a potential for shame. It's in the moments in what's it's potential to, to stop believing, to lose heart and to lose faith. It's in those moments that you will see and you will understand the depth of the roots. And I find that for many people, they came to Jesus enthusiastically. They came to Jesus emotionally. But as the sun begins to beat down on their self-made godliness, it withers it away like a soft-touch holly burning under the sun. You see... You can coerce somebody to make a decision. You can manipulate somebody to sign a card. You can manipulate and and terrify someone so much so that they'll raise their hand, perhaps even walk through the baptistry, but you know what you can't do? You can't manufacture desire. You can't coerce, manipulate, or frighten someone into loving God. You can't manipulate, coerce, or frighten someone into following Christ. There's a fear of God that comes. There's a fear of hell that's healthy. But more than that, you've got to love God. And you can't manufacture in a man desire. You can manufacture emotion. You can manufacture reason. You can manufacture urgency. You can manufacture persuasion. But you cannot manufacture desire. And if you try to live the Christian life apart from God given, spirit wrought desire, it will kill you. To try and live the Christian life apart from spirit wrought desire is, is like a branch trying to survive apart from the vine. It's, it's like an infant trying to survive apart from its mother. It's just too hard. Following Christ is just too costly. The gospel is just too costly. The life is just too hard. But if the Spirit changes you, and the Spirit changes your heart, and the Spirit changes your desire, and the Spirit changes your nature, then, then you can follow after Christ. Then you can live the gospel. Then you can count the the cost of following Jesus and say, yes, those costs are worth it. I am in. Then you can. Look at your faith. Look at your profession of faith in Christ. Was there a time in which you cried big tears and made big claims, even perhaps walked through the baptistry, but after that, you quickly fell away? And in your heart right now, you find no desire for God. You find no desire for the things of God. No hunger or thirst for righteousness is in you. Brothers and sisters, I think there's a word in there about the methods of our evangelism. There's a a word in there about the way that we share the gospel with people. We don't share the gospel merely to frighten people. You cannot frighten someone into loving God. Instead, we we share with them the, the cost of their sin, the glory of Christ. And we say, count the cost and then come on. Count the cost and then come on. This is why true conversion usually takes years. It usually takes hearing the preach word over and over, conversations over and over, true regeneration happens in the heart as the heart is slowly melted away. Not always, but most often. So we need, to, we need to let that be instructive for us. Whenever the men and women wanted to follow after Jesus, Jesus said, you better count the cost. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. The third soil that Jesus describes is a thorny soil. A thorny soil. Jesus says that the person makes an apparent profession of faith. That that is that the the seed goes and it seems to take root. It seems to to spring up. The soil seems to be nothing wrong with it. But where one plant can grow, many plants can grow. If you go and you see a desert, you know this that's a place where plants don't thrive. But you see a place where plants are growing, that's a place where almost any plant can grow. And so where this little sprig of faith had shot up, other thorns began to grow there as well. Eventually the thorns are so much larger than the sprig from the seed that they choke the seed out, smothering it, causing it to wither away and die. And Jesus says that this is the person who tries to hold on to Jesus and hold on to the world at the same time. That this is a person who tries to kind of stay middle of the road. Not really a radical for Jesus, but not really anti-Jesus. They kind of want to live a normal life in uh, in White Plains, Alabama over here. And they kind of want to be right with God over here. And so they kind of just try to figure out how to shoot the center of that and navigate that right down the middle. That this is the person that comes to Jesus and says, I've got a fast car. I've got a nice house. I've got a good job. I've got a pretty wife. I've got obedient children, so I must need some God in there too. I just got to kind of get the grand slam here. I got to hit the trifecta. I've got to get this the way that I want it. So, so the only thing that my life is missing is I just need to, to add into it some Christianity. I just need to add into it some Jesus. And then, then my life will be full. Then my life will be complete. What does Jesus say? He said, this is a heart in which faith can't live. This is a heart in which Jesus does not control. They came to Jesus because they wanted to complete their life, but they came to Jesus not wanting Jesus to control their life. You see, what they are is they are a consumer, not a Christian. They're a consumer, not a Christian. They want the rewards of Jesus. They want the fellowship of Jesus. They want heaven through Jesus, but they do not want to commit to Jesus. They do not want to surrender to Jesus. They do not want to follow Jesus. They're a consumer, not a Christian. They come to Jesus and they're like a husband who loves that his wife, he loves his wife's beauty, but he doesn't love his wife. They come to Jesus and they love Jesus' rewards, but they don't actually love Jesus. They love the idea of heaven, but they don't love Christ. They love the idea of being right with God, but they don't like being surrendered to him. So Jesus says the, the deceitfulness of the riches, the deception of all the things that they see in the world, all the, the allure toward the appetites that are in their soul draws them in and causes them to walk away from Christ and walk into the world, I ask you to look at your heart. Are you a consumer or are you a Christian? Are you a consumer, a consumer of spiritual products, a consumer of of spiritual things, getting them the way that you want them, getting them the way that you're looking for them? Or are you a Christian under the control of Christ Jesus, bowed down to him, surrendered to him? See, Jesus is not interested in adding to your treasure. Jesus is not interested in being the one who comes in and completes the treasure that you've already amassed. No, Jesus is the the treasure that is so great that there's not room for another treasure. Jesus is the treasure that comes in and supplants your treasure entirely. Gives you something of greater worth, of transcendent worth, of eternal worth. But he is not interested in sharing you with the world. It's like the rich young ruler, right? He comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, what else do I need to do? What else do I need to do? so that I can have eternal life. Jesus says, well, the Bible says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul. And he said, got it, done. Well, th- then it says, honor your, parent, uh, honor your parents. Uh, don't kill. Walk through the, the Guys, been doing those for years. I'm good. And Jesus looks at him and cuts him to the soul. And he says, well, go and sell everything that you own, and then come and follow me. And the man left and abandoned Jesus sad. Because he had great wealth. This is how often we come to Christ. Jesus, we just need to complete our fortune. Jesus, we just need to complete our lives. And Jesus is saying, no, you don't understand. Abandon your life and come to me. Betray your life and come to me. Are you a consumer or are you a Christian brothers and sisters? If you were to look for a church, how would you search for it? Would you search for a church the same way that you would search for a theme park for your family? Looking for the best attractions and the greatest show? Or would you look for depth? Would you look for the gospel? Would you look for a place that could use you in service? Would you, would you look for a place in which you can fellowship with the church family and go deep with one another and be held accountable and confronted in your sin? When you come, are you you looking to consume products? Are you wanting to know, how can I be closer to Christ? How can I walk nearer with Jesus? How can I honor him more with my life? Verses 9 and 18, I think there's there's something there that's very subtle. It's easy for us to miss. At the end of verse 9, Jesus says, He who has ears, let him hear. Verse 18, he almost repeats himself, basically a different version. He says, hear then the parable of the sower. This is something that Jesus is often saying. And I think here he's telling his disciples to especially listen up. Pay attention. Because you see, his disciples were those to whom the Father was revealing these things, right? You've heard, you remember as we've kind of went through that, Jesus says, Blessed is the man that my father reveals this to him. That they are able to see and perceive spiritual things, that they're able to to see and understand things that, that the natural mind cannot understand. And we see Jesus being particularly interested in making sure that his disciples understand this. Because he pulls them aside and explains it to them so that they will know. So here's what I think that tells us. All of those things describe a lost person. All of those first three types of soil, they describe a man who's without God, a man that is unreconciled with God. But it is is possible to be a saved person and have some of those same characteristics in your life. That that it's possible to be a disciple of Christ and still find times in which your heart is hardened. That it's possible to be a disciple of Christ and still find times. It can't be all the time. It can't be pervasive. But there are still times in your life in which you can see and, and realize that your faith is shallow. And just emotional. And you make commitments that you don't back up. That there are times in which it may be true of you. In which your eyes are caught by the allure of the world. And not as much by Christ. But I want to caution you. This is not reason for relief. I think there's a a tendency when we hear that to say, oh, well, thank goodness. I thought maybe I was lost. Now I'm not. Now I know I can be off the hook. Now I know that it's good. Well, first of all, if you're under that kind of conviction, perhaps you are lost. But second of all, this is not reason for relief. This is reason for repentance. For what does it mean for a child of God to behave as an enemy of God? What does it mean when a, a child of God, when the Spirit prompts him to share his faith, hardens his heart as though he is as, as ashamed of the Father as an atheist is? What does it mean when, when in, an, in, a, in a moment of perhaps spiritual awakening or, or emotional plea, you respond and respond in a commitment that I will give this or I will serve here or I will work here. But then after the costs become high and it begins to actually mean something, you, have to, you begin to back away and say, I just, I'm just not up for that it mean that you're rootless? What does it mean when you are a child of God and you don't have a hunger or thirst for righteousness in your heart, but instead you find yourself living for the appetites of this world, uh, being drawn in as though you were chasing after your lust like Hugh Hefner is? Now this is not reason for for relief, this is reason for repentance. Whenever in our lives we see us behaving as though we are enemies of God, when we are in fact children of God, there is reason for us to get on our faces in sorrow before God and plead with Him for forgiveness, that we might be right with Him again, that our desires might be other than they are. So where in your life do you see these things? Where in your life do you feel your heart hardening? Where in your life do you see a, a shallow emotional faith springing up and withering away? Where in your life do you see the worldliness coming in and choking out your walk with God? Jesus tells us about a fourth and final soil. And it's the only soil that Jesus describes as being a good soil. And he says the seed goes and it finds itself in this good soil. And it goes in and it be- and the roots sprout out and the plant comes up and it produces fruit. Sometimes 30-fold, sometimes 60-fold, sometimes 100-fold. It produces fruit. Fruit That the tree goes in, the roots spread out, the tree matures, the plant matures, and then it multiplies. The vision of our church is to make disciples who are maturing and multiplying to the ends of the earth for the glory of God. Because, you see, a Christian must necessarily mature. A Christian must necessarily be fruitful. The Bible has no other understanding of what a Christian is. Jesus has no other understanding of what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who grows in the faith, matures in godliness, and multiplies themselves out, calling other people to come to Christ, calling other people to follow after Him with all of their hearts. This is who a Christian is. This is the very definition of what defines a Christian. That to ask a Christian to remain immature would be like asking grass to remain dormant, or an apple tree to remain barren, or a rose bush to not bloom. It goes completely against its nature. Completely against its nature that the Spirit has come and taken residence in us and has completely and utterly changed our, our nature so that now we might bear fruit for the kingdom of God. There are not two classifications of Christians in the Bible. There are not Christians who are faithful in church and go on mission trips and other Christians who kind of just come when they can and don't really think about God the rest of the time. In the Bible, there are not Christians who just bless their meal and others who devote themselves to prayer. In the Bible, there are not Christians that are generous and radical and others that are stingy and greedy. In the Bible, there are only Christians committed to the causes of Christ with all of their hearts and all of their lives and all of their energy going after Him, bearing fruit, growing up day after day after day. And so I tell you, church, be fruitful. Be fruitful. Pursue Christ. Go up in Christ. Grow and mature and season. Don't be content with where you are. The glories of God are inexhaustible. You can go as deep in Him as you want to go. So keep going and keep plowing and keep pursuing and keep exploring and keep discovering His manifold mercies and His supreme glory in the midst of all of this wreck that is our world. Be fruitful. And I tell you that not to burden you. I tell you that so that you can finally realize the joy that comes with being who God has made you to be in Christ Jesus, so that you might finally realize the full glory of your new identity in Christ Jesus. Be fruitful. Let's pray together.